Today's going to look a little different. The first question I want to ask you is this. It's kind of a big question. What is God like? That's kind of a large question. I know. You're like, it's Sunday morning. I just got a cup of coffee. But what, seriously, what is God like? What is God like? I suppose it's like the biggest question you can ask when you think in terms of theology. Theology is the study of God. What is God like? Here's the thing. We don't need to be theologians to ask the question. Okay? We're human beings. We have a sense of wonder and mystery involved in our questioning. And one of the most basic questions of anybody who attempts to worship or even just think about God is, what is God like? Now, the reality is, um, there's a lot of different ways to answer that question, depending on where you grew up, how you grew up, what you were taught, what you've experienced. Our capacity for imagining what God is like can be pretty limitless. Is God like Zeus? Think of yourself as a Roman. Is God like Zeus? Zeus is the pinnacle of the Roman pantheon of gods. Is God like Zeus in the sense that he's incited into anger and his, the results of that anger is thunderbolts? <laughs> what is God like? Is God like, for those of you who grew up, uh, you know, you guys, some of you guys remember the Far Side comment, comics, is God like a kind of a white-bearded old man sitting behind a computer, just tapping keystrokes and things happen, you know? Is God like Thomas Jefferson's version of God, who's like a kind of a disconnected, aloof, absent clockmaker who just sets the clock and backs away and things just kind of happen? Like a deism? To venture into any attempt to answer the question of what God is like, it kind of seems impossible. It's like, who do you trust? What do you trust? And we're just kind of like mere mortals, right? Like we just don't have the capacity to really understand everything about who God is. But here's the interesting thing that Paul is doing this letter to the Romans. He's helping to arrange in their minds really what God is like. And he's calling into question a lot of times what they think that God is like. Now, I'll just be honest with you. I'm about to turn 49, and I know. (laughs) Is that old Isaac? Yeah, yeah. My my thinking about who God is and what God is like has really grown and shifted. And some of you might get a little nervous by that. They're like, oh, Ryan's changing in his beliefs. I think that's a really healthy thing. Is God like this? Well, I used to think that, but I think that God is bigger than that now. And some of you on your journey, you're sitting here and you're in a different place. You're, you're in a different place. You, the reality is we all desire certainty. We all desire a definition. We all desire to like kind of just kind of figure this out and like have an, a, a complete 
a certain understanding of what God is like. And a lot of that comes from our own fear and insecurity. And I think what Paul is doing in this letter to the Romans is he's expanding not only the Jewish understanding of what God is like, but even the, the Gentile understanding of what God is like. So this letter, like we've been talking about, is about two different groups of people who are trying to be a family of followers of Jesus together. You get the Jewish faction we call the weak. Paul calls them the weak. He's not making fun of them. He's just saying, you're still relying on this concept of who God is from your Jewish understanding, from following the law, from following circumcision and and uh, the food laws, and Sabbath laws. In the first four chapters of this letter, this first chunk, he's really kind of aiming his conversation towards the Jewish people and their understanding of who God is. Well, in the next four chapters that we're diving into today, he's kind of aiming his conversation towards the Gentiles. And the reason why we know this is in the letter itself, in the first four chapters, there's tons of references to the Old Testament. In the second four chapters, there's like virtually none. And there's this shift in the conversation that happens. And so the image of God for the Jewish people uh, could never be carved into stone, could never be made into like a bronze statue because they refused to think about God as an image. And, and, and there was this you know, beautiful, beautiful like wonder. Like they were so different than all the other nations that worshiped God, a God. Because all the other nations would create an image. And so, man, the Jewish people were like, no, there's no image. Think about how, how crazy that must have been to believe in Jesus as a Jewish person, that this was the image of God, this Jewish man, Jesus. And then Paul does something really unique and different. He talks about Jesus as the image of God. And so the whole time, the, the strong, the Gentiles are listening in as this letter is read, and it's clearly focused towards the Jewish people. And they're listening in. If you ever had like a conversation where someone's being talked to, but you're listening in and you're learning a lot, that's what's happening here. And Paul turns his attention towards them, towards the strong. And now the weak are listening to Paul's conversation to the strong. And he's talking to them about a God who's above all gods. Right? He's talking to them about this wholly different God and what this God is like. That this God isn't like a quid pro quo kind of God with transactions and stuff like do this and I'll do that. That this God is wholly different. And the whole idea of this letter is how do these people who are very different and have a very different understanding of what God is like and who God is like, how do they live at peace? Not only together, but with themselves. How do they live at peace in the middle of this empire that's raging around them with worship and status climbing and all the things that go into living in Rome? And so I'm going to read 
the beginning of chapter 5. I'm going to talk very briefly, and then we're going to do something super unique. But I'm not going to tell you what it is yet. Some of you are like, I like certainty. <laughs> Deal with it. Chapters 5 through 8 are about an external solution that God has made available to humanity. Verse 1, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And then it says, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Remember last week we talked about boasting? For the Gentiles, it was about climbing the ladder. It was about the course of honor. It was about becoming more status. And for the Jewish people, what did they boast in? The law. And so Paul is taking both of their boastings and setting them aside and saying, this is what we boast in, the hope of the glory of God. Verse 3, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for, the, for a righteous person Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Remember our conversation on God's wrath? That metaphor? That basically God just removes himself and lets us continue in the way we want? For if we, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now been reconciled, received reconciliation. That idea of how much more. And there's something happening here that Paul does. It's this kind of a unique thing writing tool for the Roman people. It's called an inclusio. And basically, it's just, it's like a poem. And in the middle of the poem is the most important part. And the most important part of that part I just read was this. The center is reconciled through his death and saved through his life. It's the most important part. Now, we want to know what God is like. That's what we want to know. And at the heart of the Christian faith is this apparent scandal. <laughs> is really what this is. This is what Paul is laying out. The scandal is a crucified God. I'm going to say that again. A crucified God. Now let's talk about the cross for a second. Above all things... What Paul is talking about here, he's talking about reconciled through his death, saved through his life. The cross is the definitive moment of Jesus' life. 
It's the supreme revelation of the very nature of who God is, of what God is like. At the cross, Jesus does not save us from God. Now, here's the thing. I want to back up for a second. Sometimes hymns and sometimes worship songs that we sing aren't like quite right. Just being honest with you. <laughs> um, and I just want to give a little bit of grace out there. We're all trying to figure out what God is like. We're all reading scripture and trying to understand it. We all don't get it right perfectly. The cross wasn't Jesus taking our arrows, arrows that were meant to come from God towards us. Okay? I just want to make, Jesus wasn't a human meat shield. There, there's something that we need to understand here that's really important. When, when we look at the cross, we don't see what God does. We see who God is. And, and sometimes it becomes a really cold doctrine. It really becomes like, um, this happens, so this happens. And we're like, okay. And we kind of have to go about our life. Listen, the great philosopher Plato, 400 years before Jesus, Okay? He talked about what if there was an actual perfect human being? <laughs> this is amazing. I love this. This is like so profound. He's like, what would happen if a perfect human being walked into this city? Perfect human being appeared into this messed up world. And he says this writing in his Republic 400 years before Christ. He's saying, what would happen if a perfectly just man showed up? He says this, our just man will be scourged, racked, fettered, and at last, after all manner of suffering, will be crucified. <laughs> the cross, we find God, here's what we find. God in Christ absorbing the sin of the world and responding with forgiveness. Okay? Jesus absor absorbs the sin of the world on the cross and God receives the most vicious blow of all of our human sin and he turns the other cheek and forgives. That's what the cross is. Jesus didn't die on the cross to change God's mind about us. God has always loved us. Okay? Jesus died on the cross to change our minds about God. And it wasn't God who required the death of Jesus. It was humanity that cried out, crucify him, crucify him. And the following section of the letter is really interesting because... It is Paul laying out kind of two lines, two rails, if you will. The Adam rail and the Jesus rail. And the Adam rail is just like this. You're stuck on a rail and you have to go in this certain direction. And there's no way off until Jesus. And so really what happens is on the cross is all the great crimes of humanity, pride and rivalry and blame and violence 
and domination and war and empire are all dragged into the light of divine judgment. And everything we call, everything that we call civilization, which is really, if you take an honest look at it throughout history, is just, it's just power and violence and retribution and all this stuff. There's a system that's built on all this power ultimately gets broken on the cross. The cross is not where we find God's whipping boy (laughs) to rage upon. The cross is where God saves the world through self-sacrificial love. And the cross is not where we see how violent God is. The cross is where we see how violent we are. The cross is where God in Christ absorbs human sin and recycles it into forgiveness. And at the cross, humanity violently sinned its sins into Jesus. And Jesus bore these sins all the way down into death and left them there. And so the, crucif- the crucifixion, and this is really important for us to hear, is not what God inflicts on Jesus in order to forgive. The crucifixion is what God endures in Christ as he forgives. So what we're going to do is we're going to do something a little different. And I want to invite our crew up that's going to help us with this. The next little bit of time is going to be our four Phoebes. Now, if you haven't been with us for the whole (laughs) series, they're not named Phoebe. They're not all four named Phoebe. Uh, Two of us are Evelyn's, though. Yeah, Evelyn and Evelyn. So um, the point is, is that all the way back to the beginning of this conversation around this, we talked about this character named Phoebe. And you can read about her a little bit at the end of this letter, but Phoebe is the one who brings the letter to the Roman house churches. And she stands up and reads the letter. In fact, she performs the letter to them. It's Paul's mouthpiece to the people in Rome. And so what we're going to do is we're going to read from a little different version than you're used to. And the reason is because we want you to not just fall into a vocabulary rut. We want you to listen. We want you to hear the words of these next few chapters. And um, for some of you, it might mean closing your eyes. It might mean closing your eyes, and you, you might hear images or images are presented with images in your mind of who God is, who you are, who we are, they're a little different. And so this morning, we're going to read. And so if you're sitting here listening, you might want to, you can feel free to jot down words or phrases um, and, um, and just listen to these words of Paul to us. I'm going to pray to prep us. Spirit, meet us in this. God, we show up here with our ideas and our thoughts and our questions about who you are. 
And God, may this morning as we just take the time to listen and quiet ourselves, that you would um, challenge us. Reach into our, our lives and our hearts and reawaken us to how much you love us, how much you pursue us, We pray these things. Amen. By entering through faith into what God has always wanted to do for us, set us right with him, make us fit for him. We have it all together with God because of our master Jesus. And that's not all. We throw open our doors to God and discover at the same moment that he has already thrown open his door to us. We find ourselves standing where we always hoped we might stand, out in the wide open spaces of God's grace and glory, standing tall and shouting our praise. There's more to come. We continue to shout our praise even when we're hemmed in with troubles because we know how troubles can develop passionate patience in us and how that patience in turn forges the tempered steel of virtue, keeping us alert for whatever God will do next. An alert expectancy such as this, we're never left feeling shortchanged. Quite the contrary, we can't round up enough containers to hold everything God generously pours into our lives through the Holy Spirit. God arrives right on time to make this happen. He didn't and doesn't wait for us to get ready. He presented himself for this sacrificial death when we were far too weak and rebellious to do anything to get ourselves ready. And even if we hadn't been so weak, we wouldn't have known what to do anyway. We can understand someone dying for a person worthy of dying for, and we can understand how someone good and noble could inspire us to do selfish sacrifice. But God put his love on the line for us by offering his son in sacrificial death while we were too, we were of no use whatsoever to him. Now that we are set right by God means of this, by means of the sacrificial death, the consummate blood sacrifice, there is no longer a question of being at odds with God in any way. If when we were at our worst, we were put on friendly terms with God by the sacrificial death of his son, now that we're at our best, just think of how our lives will expand and deepen by means of his resurrection life. Now that we've actually received this amazing friendship with God, we are no longer content to simply say it in plodding prose. We sing and shout our praises to God through Jesus the Messiah. You know the story of how Adam landed us in the dilemma we're in. First sin then death, and no one exempt from either sin or death. That sin disturbed relations with God in everything and everyone. But the extent of the disturbance was not clear until God spelled it out in detail to Moses. So death, this huge abyss separating us from God, dominated the landscape from Adam to Moses. Even those who didn't sin precisely as Adam did by disobeying a specific command of God, still had to experience this termination of life, this separation from God. 
But Adam, who got us into this, also points ahead to the one who will get us out of it. Yet the rescuing gift is not exactly parallel to the death-dealing sin. If one man's sin puts crowds of people at the dead-end abyss of separation from God, just think what God's gift poured through one man, Jesus Christ, will do. There's no comparison between the death-dealing sin and this generous, life-giving gift. The verdict on that one sin was the death sentence. The verdict on the many sins that followed was this wonderful life sentence. If death got the upper hand through one man's wrongdoing, can you imagine the breathtaking recovery life makes, absolute life, in those who grasp with both hands this wildly extravagant life gift, this grand setting everything right that the one man Jesus Christ provides? Here it is in a nutshell. Just as one person did it wrong and got all of us in this trouble with sin and death, another person did it right and got us out of it. But more than just getting us out of trouble, he got us into life. One man said no to God and put many people in the wrong. One man said yes to God and put many in the right. All that passing laws against sin did was produce more lawbreakers but sin didn't and doesn't have a chance in competition with the aggressive forgiveness we call grace. When it's sin versus grace, grace wins hand down. All sin, sin can do is threaten us with death, and that's the end of it. Grace, because God is putting everything together again through the Messiah, invites us into life a life that goes on and on and on, world without end. So what do we do? Keep on sinning so God can keep on forgiving? I should hope not. If we've left the country where sin is sovereign, how can we still live in our old house there? Or didn't you realize we packed up and left there for good? That is what happened in baptism. When we went under the water, we left the old country of sin behind. When we came up out of the water, we entered into the new country of grace, a new life in a new land. That's what baptism into the life of Jesus means. When we are lowered into the water, it is like the burial of Jesus. When we are raised up out of the water, it is like the resurrection of Jesus. Each of us is raised into a light-filled world by our Father so that we can see where we're going in our new grace-sovereign country. Could it be any clearer? Our old way of life was nailed to the cross with Christ, a decisive end to that sin-miserable life, no longer captive to sin's demands. What we believe is this. If we get included in Christ's sin-death-conjuring, we also get included in his life-saving resurrection. We know that when Jesus was raised from the dead, it was a signal of the end of death as the end. Never again will death have the last word. When Jesus died, he took sin down with him, but alive, he brings God down to us. From now on, think of it this way. Sin speaks a dead language that means nothing to you. God speaks your mother tongue, and you hang on to every word. You are dead to sin and alive to God. That's what Jesus did. That means you must not give sin a vote in the way you conduct your lives. Don't give it the time of day. 
Don't even run little errands that are connected with that old way of life. Throw yourselves wholeheartedly and full time. Remember, you've been raised from the dead into God's way of doing things. Sin can't tell you how to live. After all, you're not living under that old tyranny any longer. You're living in the freedom of God. So, since we're out from under the old tyranny, does that mean that we can live any way we want? Since we're free in the freedom of God, can we do anything that comes to mind? Hardly. You know well enough from your own experience that there are some acts of so-called freedom that destroy freedom. Offer yourself to sin, for instance, and it's your last free act. But offer yourself to the ways of God, and the freedom never quits. All your lives, you've let sin tell you what to do. But thank God you've started listening to a new master, one whose commands set you free to live for openly in his freedom. I'm using this freedom language because it's easy to picture. You can readily recall, can't you, how at one time the more you did just what you felt like doing, not caring about others, not caring about God, the worse your life became and the less freedom you had. And how much different is it now as you live in God's freedom, your lives healed and expansive in holiness? As long as you did what you felt like doing, ignoring God, you didn't have to bother with right thinking or right living or right anything for that matter. But do you call that a free life? What did you get out of it? Nothing you're proud of now. Where did it get you? A dead end. But now that you've found you don't have to listen to sin tell you what to do and have discovered the delight of listening to God telling you, what a surprise. A whole, healed, put-together life right now with more and more of life on the way. Work hard for sin your whole life and your pension is death. But God's gift is real life, eternal life, delivered by Jesus, our Master. You shouldn't have any trouble understanding this, friends, for you know all the ins and outs of the law, how it works and how its power touches only the living. For instance, a wife is legally tied to her husband while he lives, but if he dies, she's free. If she lives with another man while her husband is living, she's obviously an adulteress. But if he dies, she's quite free to marry another man in good conscience with no one's disapproval. So my friends, this is something like what has taken place with you. When Christ died, he took that entire rule-dominated way of life down with him and left it in the tomb, leaving you free to marry a resurrection life and bear offspring of faith for God. For as long as we lived that old way of life, doing whatever we felt we could get away with, sin was calling most of the shots as the old law code hemmed us in. And this made us all the more rebellious. In the end, all we had to show for it was miscarriages and stillbirths. But now that we're no longer shackled to that domineering mate of sin and out from under all those oppressive regulations and fine print, we're free to live a new life in the freedom of God. But I can hear you say, if the law code was so bad as all of that, it's no better than sin itself. That's certainly not true. 
the law code had a perfectly legitimate function. Without its clear guidelines of right and wrong, moral, moral behavior would be mostly guesswork. Apart from the sexual and surgical command, you shall not covet. I could have dressed covetness up to look like a virtue and ruined my life with it. Don't you remember how it was? I do, perfectly well. The law code started out as an excellent piece of work. What <clears throat> happened, though, was that sin found a way to pervert the command into a temptation, making a piece of forbidden fruit out of it. The law code, instead of being used to guide me, was used to seduce me. With all, without all the paraphernalia of the law code, sin looked pretty dull and lifeless, and I went along without paying much attention to it. But once sin got its hands on the law code and decked itself out in all that finery, I was fooled, and I fell for it. The very command that was supposed to guide me into life was cleverly used to trip me up, throwing me headlong. So sin was plenty alive, and I was stone dead. But the law code itself is God's good and common sense, each command sane and holy counsel. I can already hear your next question. Does that mean I can't even trust what is good, that is the law? Is good just as dangerous as evil? No, again. Sin simply did what sin is so famous for doing, using the good as a cover to tempt me to do what would finally destroy me. By hiding within God's good commandment, sin did far more mischief than it could ever have accomplished on its own. I can anticipate the response that is coming. I know that all God's commands are spiritual, but I am not. Isn't this also your experience? Yes. I'm full of myself. After all, I spent a long time in sin's prison. What I don't understand about myself is that I decide one way, but then I act another, doing things I absolutely despise. So if I can't be trusted to figure out what is best for myself and then do it, it becomes obvious that God's command is necessary. But I need something more. For if I know the law, but I still can't keep it, and if the power of sin within me keeps sabotaging my best intentions, I obviously need help. I realize that I don't have what it takes. I can will it, but I can't do it. I decide to do good, but I don't really do it. I decide not to do bad, but then I do it anyway. My decisions, such as they are, don't result in actions. Something has gone wrong deep within me and gets the better of me every time. It happens so regularly that it's predictable. The moment I decide to do good, sin is there to trip me up. I truly delight in God's commands, but it's pretty obvious that not all of me joins in that delight. Part of me covertly rebels, and just when I least expect it, they take charge. I've tried everything, and nothing helps. I'm at the end of my rope. Is there no one who can do anything for me? Isn't that the real question? The answer? thank God, is that Jesus Christ can and does. He acts to set things right. In his life, in this life of contradictions where I want to serve God with all my heart and mind, but am pulled by the influences of sin to do something totally different. 
With the arrival of Jesus, the Messiah, the fateful dilemma is resolved. Those who enter into Christ being here for us no longer have the life under a continuous, low-lying black cloud. A new power is in operation, the spirit of life in Christ. Like a strong wind has mag magnificently cleared the air, freeing you from a fateful life of brutal tyranny at the hands of sin and death. God went for the jugular when he sent his own son. He didn't deal with the problem as something remote and unimportant. In his son, Jesus, he personally took on the human condition, entered the disordered mass of struggling humanity in order to set it right once and for all. The law code, weakened as it always was by fractured human nature, could never have done that. The law always ended up being used as a band-aid on sin instead of a deep healing of it. And now what the law code asked for, but we couldn't deliver, is accomplished as we, instead of redoubling our own efforts, simply embrace what the Spirit is doing in us. Those who can think they could do it on their own end up obsessed with measuring their own moral muscle, but never get around to exercising it in real life. Those who trust God's action in them find that God's Spirit is in them, living and breathing God. Obsession with self in these matters is a dead end. Attention to God leads us out into the open, into a spacious, free life. Focusing on the self is the opposite of focusing on God. Anyone completely absorbed in self ignores God, ends up thinking more about self than God. That person ignores who God is and what he is doing, and God isn't pleased at being ignored. But if God himself has taken up residence in your life, you can hardly be thinking more of yourself than of him. Anyone, of course, who has not welcomed this invisible but clearly present God, the Spirit of Christ, won't know what we're talking about. But for you who welcome him, in whom he dwells, even though you still experience all the limitations of sin, you yourself experience life on God's terms. It stands to reason, doesn't it, that if an alive and present God who raised Jesus from the dead moves into your life, he'll do the same thing in you that he did in Jesus, bringing you alive to himself. When God lives and breathes in you, and he does, as surely as he did in Jesus, you are delivered from that dead life. With his spirit living in you, your body will be as alive as Christ. So, don't you see that we don't owe this do-it-yourself life one red cent? There's nothing in it for us, nothing at all. The best thing to do is to give it a decent burial and get on with the new life. God's spirit beckons. There are things to do and places to go. The resurrection life you receive from God is not a timid, grave-tending life. It's adventurously expectant, greeting God with a childlike, what's up, Papa? God's spirit touches our spirit and confirms who we really are. We know who he is, and we know who we are, Father, and children, and we know we are going to get what's coming to us, an unbelievable inheritance. We go through exactly what Christ goes through. If we go through the hard times with him, 
then we're certainly going to go through the good times with him. That's why I don't think there's any comparison between the present hard times and the coming good times. The created world itself can hardly wait for what's coming next. Everything in creation is being more or less held back. God reigns it in until both creation and all the creatures are ready and can be released at the same moment into the glorious times ahead. Meanwhile, the joyful anticipation deepens. All around us, we observe a pregnant creation. The difficult times of pain throughout the world are simply birth pangs. It is not only around us, it's within us. The Spirit of God is arousing us within. We're also feeling the birth pangs. These sterile and barren bodies of ours are yearning for full deliverance. That's why waiting does not diminish us any more than waiting diminishes a pregnant mother. We are enlarged in the waiting. We, of course, don't see what is enlarging us. But the longer we wait, the larger we become, and the more joyful our expectancy. Meanwhile, the moment we get tired in the waiting, God's Spirit is right alongside helping us along. If we don't know how or what to pray, it doesn't matter. He does our praying in and for us, making prayer out of our wordless sighs and our aching groans. He knows us far better than we know ourselves, knows our pregnant condition, and keeps us present before God. That's why we can be so sure that every detail of our lives of love for God has worked into something good. God knew what he was doing from the very beginning. He decided from the onset to shape the lives of those who love him along the same lines as the life of his son. The son stands first in the line of humanity he restored. We see the original and intended shape of our lives there in him. After God made that decision of what his children should look like, he followed up by calling people by name. After he called them by name, he set them on the solid basis with himself. And then, after getting them established, he stayed with them to the end, gloriously completing what he had begun. So what do you think? With God on our side like this, how can we lose? If God didn't hesitate to put everything on the line for us, embracing our condition and exposing himself to the worst by sending his own son, is there anything else he wouldn't gladly and freely do for us? And who would dare tangle with God by messing with one of God's chosen? Who would dare even point a finger? The one who died for us, who was raised to life for us, is in the presence of God at this very moment, sticking up for us. Do you think anyone is going to be able to drive a wedge between us and Christ's love for us? There is no way. Not trouble, not hard times, not hatred, not hunger, not homelessness, not bullying threats, not backstabbing, not even the worst sins listed in the scripture. They kill us in cold blood because they hate you. We're sitting ducks. They pick us off one by one. None of this phases us because Jesus loves us. I am absolutely convinced that nothing, nothing living or dead, angelic or demonic, today or tomorrow, high or low, thinkable or unthinkable, absolutely nothing can get between us and God's love 
because of the way that Jesus, our master, has embraced us. that go for you. <laughs> little quick <clears throat> audience participation, sorry. <clears throat> what did you what did you learn about God? Just throw it out there. What struck you? about what God is like. How did you think about yourself before hearing that? And now, maybe, how do you think about yourself after hearing that? I'm a mess, and that's okay. <laughs> I'm a mess, and that's okay. Did you hear that part in there where Paul was just being brutally honest with how, how he sees himself? Well, that's Paul. How did that change how you see each other? How does that change how you see other people? So I'm just going to let those things kind of stir in you a bit. Um, we read four chapters out loud. There's 16 chapters in this letter. And um, you could probably sense your modern self kind of with your attention span. <laughs> like, okay, I need to check Twitter. I need to... <laughs> but they sat and heard this. They probably heard it over and over and over again. And I just want you to, my hope is, my, my, my goal is, is that you would walk out of this place today with a, with a big deep breath of saying, this is who God is. And maybe that stretched your imagination of who God is a bit. That you've been able to give yourself more grace as a human being 
because of what God has done, his grace for you. But sometimes I think the blocker for grace in our lives is ourselves. And that it would give you compassion and love and grace for the people in your life. And so my benediction for you today, it comes out of Psalm 48, verse 14. And the first line of that psalm is this, of that verse is this, for this God is our God forever and ever. I'm going to say it again. For this God is our God forever and ever. And so church, you are loved. And because of that, you can love. All right, go in peace. Amen.